Open us up in prayer, please. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to uh, come here and just learn uh, how to defend your word, God. Just to, I pray that we we also just receive all of this as a blessing, Lord. So everything that you want to teach, everything that you want to say, uh, Lord, uh, bless us, Lord, in this time, Lord, that we may know you more and that we may have a, uh, a power place of where we can help people to know you as well. Uh, in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Thank you, my brother. Well, I got some good news for you guys. Since uh, we have last talked, I have uh, actually had a little bit of a dialogue slash debate with other Christians on apologetic methods. Leighton Flowers on his uh, Google Hangout Soteriology 101 had a, a dialogue with Eric Hernandez, a classical apologist who actually has come into quite a bit of attention. So if you guys are not keeping up with the apologetic podcast world, let me give you guys a little heads up. There was a discussion between one of the guys that I played with you, uh, played for you at the beginning, Cy Ten Bergenkate. He was the guy with the blonde hair, kind of balding a little bit. Well, he's the real sassy pre-sup. And he had a debate with Eric Hernandez, who's another Christian believer, who's a classical apologist, who's basically an understudy of of, uh, William Lane Craig, the world-famous classical apologist. So they get on a podcast. They have their discussion. It gets picked up by William Lane Craig and his huge audience. And William Lane Craig kind of takes Eric's side and rebuts the presuppositional side. And then James White, the presup guy who's got a national audience, he picks it up and then he does his own show. So you got the main debate, then you got the two big dogs that come in, and then you got Leighton Flowers that brought him in. And Leighton Flowers had almost a quarter of a million views last month on his podcast. And so he brought him in on this um kind of Google Hangout, and then I came in and had a dialogue there. And so I actually put it in today's notes. You can see it. It starts around the 30-minute mark. And so that's really cool. Well, then also in that discussion, I got to meet an atheist, and he was a part of it. And now he's agreed to be with us the last class. So you guys are going to get on the hand, on the job training, hands-on training, the last class. So I'm not going to tell you anything about him. I'm not going to prepare you other than what this class prepares you for. And then he's going to come into the sheep's den, as I call it, not the lion's den, but the sheep's den. And I think what I'm going to do is give each one of you guys about five minutes to go back and forth with him. I'll be interjecting. And then at the end, him and I will have more of a formal dialogue slash debate. So that's going to be really exciting to look forward to. And then on top of that, when Robert Spencer, the New York Times bestselling author on Islam, came to do a debate in our campus on Irving, I had met one of the main leaders. He's actually a a medical doctor. He's a Muslim, and he's the president of the Gain Peace Muslim Dawah Initiative. Dawah is their form of evangelism. They call it Dawah. I gave him my book, challenged him to a debate. He never took me up on it. Well, long story short, this same week, he gives me a call, and he wants to come on our podcast in a couple of weeks with Jared and I, and he wants to take that subject on. And then if it goes well, he'll bring us into his Islamic center or a local mosque. Because I said, I've already taken on the expense and brought in our guys. I think you should take that on and have us come to your peeps. So now that uh, I have sowed the seed of apologetics here in 301, 
Now it's about ready to get on with an atheist. Uh, he's a philosophy student at Arizona State, so that's being reaped. And then with Jared and I doing our Pentecostal podcast on Wednesdays, that's going to be reaping good fruit with a Muslim and so forth. So just know that God will send us at the right time and right place. I do not want to get lost in debating. I used to do it a lot more than I did now. About 10 years ago, before it was real popularized, and YouTube and all this stuff was just starting, and I actually got out of it right at that time. And so now I believe I've come into it with a certain amount of maturity and a balance to it. So I'm not going to spend my life uh, debating because it can just take forever. Just for example, that debate that I was in with uh, uh, the Christians, you know, the Google Hangout with Leighton and Eric Hernandez, that was almost two hours of my time, and it went from like 9 until 11, and you just get done. You're tired. The kids already went to bed, and I didn't get much time to be with my wife. I you know, because I had just come back from hanging out with my kids. And I said, oh, let me jump on this real quick. And I kind of had to hurry them to bed. And it's just not worth it to me. I thank God for there being full-time apologists. But I think it's good that we can do these things. And then you put on top of that, that the church has now approved us to raise $12,000 for a ministry truck that we can take out year-round, but predominantly multiple times in the spring, summer, and fall. You know, might be limited in the winter, but having a ministry truck where the side will be cut out and lowered to a stage, we'll have our sound system there. You just really see a lot of seeds that are being so have been sown starting to reap at this time. Also tying our, our largest number of disciples in the church, 155. Uh, and also the average being the highest, our average of, of the services in the church being the highest that it's been. So wh whether it's our life groups, uh, Connect Mentor Send is the important thing for us, right? So if somebody's listening to this and they don't know, uh, Connect is where we do our services and life groups. Mentors where we do our 101 and 201 discipleship. And Send is where we send out our leaders to make new disciples and do evangelism. You see the life group attendance up, almost like 230 attending every month. Um, you know, just an amazing, sometimes it can be up towards a 260 that the service is averaging right around the 250 disciples around 155. Uh, you know, you minus the children out of that, the 250, you get right, right around, you know, 200. That's about 80% of our church. And then you see right now that almost every one of our elders and deacons has a disciple and they're making a new disciple because we have about 74 101s right now. And we have roughly around 50, um, elders and deacons. And so you can see that's more than one, on average, more than one uh, disciple per elder or deacon. That's a great average. So thank you. For those who don't know, this is a 301 class for Metro Praise International. You, you can subscribe to us either through our What Do You Believe Facebook page or through our Metro Praise International iTunes uh, account or our app under the same name of our church. Okay, so let's get started. A lot of good testimonies, goodies that I wanted to share with you guys today. Well, we are in week four, chapter three. I confused this last week, so I said we were in chapter three, week three. No, but we're always going to be a week behind in the chapters because we had an introduction week. So this is week four, chapter three. We're going to be talking about uh, proof. Today is going to be apologetics as proof. As always, the notes are online, also in PDF form, and... Uh, we're going to get started with the scripture reading. Here's Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 10 through 17. 
says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So none of you can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So as we get into today's lesson on proof, we need to remember, number one, there are different apologetic methods, just like there were different teachers in the time of the early church, as Paul is addressing here. And we do not want to divide as Christian apologists over how we use evidence and proof. Because as you will see, that's the main difference is how we address the unbeliever, the non-Christian with evidence and proof. That's our major differences is how we do that. And yet our goals are all the same, to preach the gospel and to make disciples. And so we should not divide. And you'll learn about the different uh, categories of apologists and the ones that that are popular today. And people line up under and some of them uh, uh, combine them. But remember, this is not something we divide over. We should always treat each other in love and brotherly kindness. We should be full of the spirit. We should not make apologetic method a issue of division. And I would say even more so, not only should we not make it an issue of division, we should not make it an issue of contention. And what I mean by that is we don't split off from each other and say we don't love each other because uh, you know we have a different apologetic method. Okay, that's obvious. We're not going to divide, but then we're also not going to turn and fight on each other, fight at fight with each other. We we can come to each other with our differences. We can say this is what I believe. What do you believe? We we can address the issues at hand, but we don't have a contentious spirit. Van Til did not die for you. William Lane Craig did not die for you. You were not baptized in the name of Augustine. Amen. Let me get a little hand wave from everybody here in the webcast. Amen. We did not be, we were not purchased by man. We were purchased by the God man. And so I want everyone to be reminded of that as we get into today's discussion on proof, because no matter what, we need to take the mindset of Paul that we're preaching the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence. It doesn't mean that we don't have Sophia or knowledge or those kinds of things in our lives. What it means, though, is that that is not our dependence. Our dependence is not on eloquence. If you have the choice between stuttering and stammering or being eloquent, okay, yes, be eloquent. If you have the choice between knowing something and not knowing something, being wise or unwise, obviously the whole book of Proverbs is about wisdom. But the point isn't that we're going to win people to the Lord by all the stuff we know or how well we say it. 
Because if we can impress people with knowledge, someone else can impress them with rebuttals to our knowledge. And if we can get people to be Christians based on how eloquent we are, another person who's more eloquent than we are can convince them not to be a Christian. I don't know if you've ever listened to Louis Farrakhan, but he has a way of speaking that's really smart and it seems eloquent. But he's a false teacher, right? He's a false prophet. And so we're not here to win people with our smooth talk and a bunch of facts that seem to astound the mind. The gospel is what our foundation is, and it's how we do apologetics. And I believe all of the apologetic methods and the way they use proof have that at their center. And I've heard, especially from the presuppositional camp, and you'll notice this, and that's why I've kind of guarded you guys from it, that the more you get into it, you'll notice they're more sassy than everybody else because a lot of them have that Calvinist mindset that God chose who would be saved and God chose who would be damned and salvation has nothing to do with human choice. So I can offend you as much as I want and not have to worry about it costing you your soul because if you were meant to get saved, God would save you anyways. And then the way they treat the church is if you don't have this mindset of this sovereignty of God being arbitrary, like then you're not masculine enough to really preach the gospel to begin with. And sometimes they even question whether or not non-Calvinists even preach the real gospel. And so that is their issue. We're not going to get into that. We're not going to separate over Calvinism or presuppositional apologetics. And so we're going to avoid that in our church, in our ministry. And I'm going to encourage that through all people listening to me, because sometimes you'll hear them and they'll be so um, enthralled with their leaders and with their leaders' teachings and what this one has to say that they really become man-centered and not gospel-centered. And the Bible says if you do that, you empty the cross of its power. So we do not want to empty the cross of its power. And us being Pentecostals, we don't ever want to do that. We rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? All right, so let's get into the ways that we use proof. Chapter three of Dr. Frame's book is dealing with apologetics as proof. Now, if you remember, he gave us at the beginning of the book the three forms of Christian apologetics. Now, let's just back up and say this. This is an apologetic book, and it's giving us Dr. Frame's perspective, who was a student under Van Til, who really formed this in the 50s and 60s, uh, the, the approach that we use in apologetics called presuppositional apologetics. And apologetics comes from 1 Timothy 3.15, talking about the defending of the faith, giving an answer to those who ask us for the hope that's within us. And we do that based on their worldview, based on their uh, the world's presuppositions, because we know according to Romans 1.18 that they have the proof of God, but they are suppressing it, Okay. Now, he, Dr. Frame, gives us three forms that apologetics will take. Number one, it will take the form of proof. Number two, it will take the form of defense. And number three, it will take the form of offense going on the attack. And that's what you want to do every time you do apologetics. So remember, when I'm talking to the atheist, I'm going to offer him proof. If he comes back against that proof, I'm then going to defend it. And while I'm defending defending my proof, I'm going to go on the attack of his worldview. 
Okay, let's just go through that one more time because some of you are still asking me in our pre-class talks, how does this happen in the worldview? Here it is. Jesus is Lord and has raised from the dead. Here is the proof. The Bible says it. All the witnesses confirm it. Paul attested to it. Boom, there it is. Deal with it. Then they go, no, he didn't. I don't believe in miracles. I don't believe in the reliability of the Bible. Boom, we say, you don't have a leg to stand on. Well, before we attack, rather, we go, you should believe this because this is reliable. The Bible is telling the truth in these historical ways. We can prove it in history. And you don't have, now we go on the offense, you don't have a leg to stand on because a non-Christian worldview leads to absurdity. Not only just an atheist view leads to absurdity, but a Muslim view, a, G a Jewish view, a Hindu view. All other views lead to absurdity. All of them lead to foolishness. That's why the, the Bible says the fool says in their heart there's no God. So anyone that denies God is a fool according to the Bible. And then it goes on to say that Jesus in the New Testament, that's the Old Testament, and then Jesus said that the fool hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice, and they're like a person who built their house on the sand, right? And the one who does it is like someone who builds their house on the rock. So the fool is the, the atheist, uh, not like a fool, like we're calling them names or saying they can't do math or science and they can't be brilliant people, but we're saying when it comes to an eternal mindset, the worldview, the lenses by which they see the world from, if it isn't through God and his son Jesus spoken through the words of scripture, it will lead to folly, okay? So let's go through these really quick in review. These have already been in your notes. Proof, and now I uh, put the quotation marks there so you know exactly when I'm quoting from Dr. Frame in the book, because sometimes I don't quote from him, okay? So now you know, and I also have the page numbers and locations there. Proof, presenting a rational basis for faith or proving Christianity to be true. Jesus and the apostles often offered evidence to people who had difficulty believing the gospel was true. And these are the scriptures you can see, John 14, 11, John 20, verses 24 through 31. That's actually the reason why the gospels were written, Okay, so let me just read that real quick. John uh, 20 here. I'll just read it to you. John 20, verse 11. This is what, um, this is uh, 24, rather. John 20, 24. He offered Thomas the sign that he had raised from the dead. And then in verse 30 of John 20, verse 30, 24 since sowing Thomas, he raised from the dead. And then John 20, verse 30 says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, verse 31, but these, those signs, concluding with the sign of Thomas, like, I mean, it can't get any more clearer than this. Jesus raised from the dead. Remember, that's why the gospel is written, is to show that. He says, but these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the gospels themselves were written as an evidence, a proof to the testimony of Christ specifically him raising from the dead. Believers themselves sometimes doubt, and at that point, apologetics becomes useful for them, even apart from its role in dialogue with unbelievers. So we are to be encouraged by the proof of the scriptures and to live according to the faith that it gives us by the Holy Spirit. That is to say, apologetics confronts unbelief in the believer as well as in the unbeliever. Okay, now apologetics as defense. Apologetics as defense, answering the objections of unbelief. Paul describes his missions as defending and confirming the gospel. 
Philippians 1, 7. Defending and confirming, okay? So you're defending and confirming there, right? At the same time, look at that. Confirming may refer to number one above as proof, but defending is more specifically focused on giving answers to the objections that come up. Now, once again, why is presuppositional apologetics, in my opinion, so important right now is because after Kantian philosophy came out, the people began to doubt that we could know anything objectively true. So basically, uh, Kant came out and had a philosophy that you really can't be sure about anything, like a, like a high level of skepticism. And that's why we had to answer it with the Christian perspective. And we saw that this was useful as well as historical in other times when you dealt with the kind of philosophies that would really be skeptic and say that really nothing can be objection, um, um, uh, objectively true. They would say everything is subjectively true. And then you ask them, is truth objective? And then they would say no. And then you would ask them, is that objectively true or subjective? And if they go, it's subjective, then go, well, there could be objective truth and you just don't know it. And if they say, yes, it is objectively true, that means it's always true. Then you would say, then you just made your first true statement. There is no truth. And you've contradicted yourself because now you have your first objective truth, right? So the idea is we're confronting right now and defending, especially in our culture, a very like um, what we would call postmodern, uh, very much a real naturalistic postmodern way of thinking, and we need to be able to respond to it, as well as other uh, attacks against the faith we need to defend against Islam and other religions. Okay, much of Paul's writing in the New Testament is apologetic in this sense. And so who is Paul writing against in his apologetic letters, like in Galatians? He's writing against Jews who want to convert pagans to Judaism first, then make them Christians. So first, tell the, tell the Gentile to get circumcised, keep the law of Moses, the dietary law and all that, then have them accept Jesus as the Messiah. And, and Paul's going, no, 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 no. We don't need to go through the old covenant to the new covenant. The new covenant is a fulfillment of the old covenant. Jews, if you want to continue to keep te uh, teaching the old covenant, you need to go all the way and try to keep it for salvation. Otherwise, just do it in honor of the Lord, but nothing to do with salvation. It's been fulfilled. The, the temple veil has been rent. Jesus has come and fulfilled it. Okay? So think of how many times Paul responds to the imaginary or real objectors in his letters just in the book of Romans. Now here you have, once again, he's responding to Jews who are now hypocrites and not living right, but are judging the Gentiles. So a lot of the New Testament um, apologetic letters are either against Jews who are not understanding the new covenant or against Gnostics who are mixing in wrong philosophy that the Greeks had and now are putting it into Christianity. And that would be like the letters of, of maybe Colossians. He might be dealing with them there. And we know in first John, John is dealing with them, etc. And also think about how often Jesus deals with the objections of religious leaders in the gospel of John. Now note this, when we talk about the Socratic method of asking questions as Socrates would do to make his points. That's why our show is called, What Do You Believe? Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Then who do you say that I am? And then one time when he was debating, he said, what did you go out to see John the Baptist for? Was John the Baptist a prophet? Was he sent by God? And then in another place, Jesus says, who's, who is the Lord, David or the, the one that David calls? No, rather he says like this. 
How is the Messiah a son of David if David calls him Lord and says, my Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, if you notice, Jesus was asking them those questions to rock them. And then the, the one about how can the Messiah be the Lord of David and yet be considered his son in genealogy was actually the one that shut him down. And then in another time when he rocked them with John the Baptist, they got afraid to answer because they said, if we think John the Baptist is a prophet, then everybody's going to think like we agree with him and we agree with Jesus. But if we say John the Baptist is not a prophet, all these people who think he's a prophet are going to attack us, you know. So Jesus was great at defending the gospel as well as going on the attack, especially using questions. That's why I love to ask questions. And a lot of apologetic method will involve questions. Now, going on the offense is attacking the foolishness of the unbelieving thought. So we're going to start going against the unbelieving thought. So if I'm dealing with somebody who already believes in God, I'm not going to start giving them atheistic arguments like, you know, a Muslim. Well, do you know about the first cause of the universe? He's going to be like, of course I do. It's God, you know. But, but what I'm going to do is tailor the proof and uh, gospel preaching to the actual situation that they're in and the problems that they're having. So what am I going to do when I attack uh, the Muslim's unbelieving thought? I'm going to say Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. The Quran denies both of those. So you remember, we go to the man in the book of other religions. We go to our Bible and we go to our man, the God man, Jesus Christ. And then we show them how they do not line up with that. And then we can go one more step further and show them that because they don't have divine scripture, there are contradictions and inconsistencies even in their own writing. And as you'll see, like in Islam, this is one of the telltale signs. That's why I always bring this up is not only does the scripture falsify their facts, but the, the scripture gives us wisdom to show they're conflicting. Uh, and like I said, a religion could write a short little paper and just be like, I am God. Well, there may not be any conf internal conflict, but we know it conflicts with the scripture. But nine times out of ten, or most, most religious beliefs conflict and conflict within themselves, where we have over 40 authors writing a book over a thousand years with no inner conflict. Okay, And so like Islam says in one place, Listen to the people of the book, the El Kitab. Listen to the Jewish Torah. Listen to the Christians in Jeel, the stories of Esau. Listen to David's writings of Zabar. Listen to them. And then in another place, he says a bunch of things that deny what our scriptures say. So we bring this to the, the, the Muslim. We say, well, which one is it? Do we listen to the scriptures that you say confirm your prophet? Because if we do, then it now denies your prophet and all of these things that it says against him. So now what they've tried to do is say, well, the scriptures that our prophet said go to, the Injil, the Torah, the, 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 um, the, um, the Sabar, the Psalms, those have changed. And then we go, no, 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 your prophet was around the, uh, the seventh century. We have manuscripts that go far back before them that look exactly like our Bible. So you have an inner conflict now with what your prophet is saying. We can do that with, with most religions, if not all. In view of the importance of defending the faith, it's not surprising that some will define apologetics as simply just the defense of the faith. But that, defe that definition can be misleading. God calls his believers not only to answer the objections of unbelievers, but also to go on the attack against falsehood. Paul says we destroy arguments. Remember, we've read that. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Non-Christian thinking is folly or foolishness, according to Scripture. And that's in 1 Corinthians 1.18 and so forth. And one function of apologetics is to expose that foolishness for what it is. So in review, it's very important. Now we know this because we're going to start going on to these three things. The rest of the book is going to be all about this, helping us to understand how to give proof, 
helping us understand how to defend the faith and how to go on the offense. That's very important. So now we're addressing proof, okay? But before we do, in this book, I wanted to take that little moment to explain to you probably the three main apologetic approaches. And as I said before, their differences are how they use proof. Now, I don't have time to get into all of them, but I put them there. I got them mostly from Wikipedia. And once again, that's just an easy way to share resources. I always say this in my college classes. Don't believe anything on the internet, including Wikipedia or other places, until you've done research and have it multiply uh, attested. Okay, so don't believe anything. Just multiple sources should confirm truth to you. And the more important that truth is, is the more diligence you should have in researching it. But Wikipedia is good, and they've actually tested it to uh, Cyclopedia Britannica, about just as good as 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 uh, information goes. Now, they can get into controversial things where you take that with a grain of salt. But when it just kind of describes things like this, I you know, I don't usually ever see a conflict between this and the books that I have. And it makes it really easy to share. And then, you know, I left the links in there so you can click on them, you know, get biographies on people. That's always good to get. So basically, here are the three main views. The presuppositional view, which says there's no neutral ground only God can make sense of reason and existence. So that's what we say right at the beginning. I'm not offering you any other proof at the beginning other than the proof of your existence and your reason. Because if you deny that God exists, you're denying that you exist and that you have reason. And that is absurdity. That's folly. Now, if you say you can have reason and you can exist without God, you go into an endless regress. You better start trying to backpedal or pedal forward real fast because you got more pushing you that way than you go this way. So they say, no, I exist and there is no God. Well, how would you get here? A uh, big bang. What banged? Who banged it? Well, there's a multiverse that bangs a bunch of universe. What banged the multiverse? You see how quickly they, they, they run into a problem? The infinite regress. Oh, and then they go, okay, well, let's not talk about that. Okay. But I can reason. How can you reason? Well, because I can test my reason with my reason. How do you know your reason is correct? Well, I've tested it with reason. We're going in circles now. You have no 12-inch uh, ruler to get a perfect 12-inch ruler to. You have no ability to do those things. So you have to have a standard outside of yourself. Otherwise, it's just an illusion, just like what we read with Alex Rosenberg. You can't say, I just believe what science says, because science says nothing. You can only learn science through the inductive method, and both Bertrand Russell and others, have, and that's a famous atheist, wrote about how induction is just based upon premises no one can ever prove with induction, which is like basically to say this, I only believe what science says. Well, can you believe that statement? I only believe what science says by science. Can you prove it? Of course not. So we're not going to use proof and then have them come reason and get into a, an idea of like we're both on the same ground of reason and existence. And now let's both look at proof. No, we're going to say to them, you, you have to borrow our worldview to even look at proof. OK, now some of this obviously is in review. Now, when we get to the differences in, a, in, in presuppositional, there has been some debates between different ones. Van Til and Gordon Clark have been the two main kind of sides of presuppositional apologetics. You can read their differences there. I got outside links. There's a video on the differences. I mean, these are things that people just spend their life doing, okay? And then I have a demonstration of the presuppositional approach in a debate with Eddie Tabash 
and uh, Dr. Bonson. And Bonson is one of the famous ones. So when we're talking about presuppositional, we're talking about Van Til, Bonson, and Frame. That kind of goes in that order. Van Til was the first, and then, there, then he died, then it was Bonson, then he died. Now Frame is an older guy. He really just kind of retired, but he's still out there. And I gave you guys his video, I gave you guys his video on our page. And the long story short, they all kind of have their differences. Even Frame in our book is a bit different because he actually favors arguments more like the classical approach, and that's why he gives us a bunch in this book. But he believes, as we're going to learn next week with TAG, the Transcendental Argument for God, T-A-G, Transcendental Argument for God, he believes, because that's the presuppositional main argument, he believes it's from that place we give all the evidences, but we can still give evidence. And then you have some that say, don't ever give any of those evidence, just stay with TAG. And then you have others that say, really don't even get into TAG because they're so much a sinner, they won't even understand it. Just keep saying back to them, how do you know what you know? And I can literally show you a video by Cy Ten Bergenkate. Well, that's what he does almost for an entire hour. Everything the guy says back to him, how do you know what you know? How do you know? Could you be wrong? How do you know? And just oh, and the guy's literally saying to him, will you please stop saying that? And he's like, how do you know that I'm saying that? Why are you getting upset? It, it just keeps going on and on. And so there are some who are like super extreme, like we'll never move past this point until you admit you don't know nothing without God. Then there's others who, you know, who have different views of it. And then, you know, the, then between Van Til and Clark, uh, Clark takes much more serious, not that they don't both take serious the word of God, but Clark was very much focused on scripture and that being the only thing and not even relying upon what we would call epistemology, though they were both smart and all of that. It's just his, his main axiom was scripture and not even the arguments from the scripture. So uh, there's a lot in that. Okay. The next one is the classical approach, which is going to basically say, let's use proof from each other's side, meeting on neutral ground, and let the reasonable arguments point to Jesus and let us show them that we have more proof than they have proof. So let's, let's get two, two people together. One's an evolutionist, one's a creationist. You give me your proof for evolution, I'll give you my proof for creation. And then we're going to believe that you're going to see there's more proof for creation, et cetera. And they're going to use arguments and they're going to use evidence. So they're not going to try to argue with the unbeliever on whether or not they can reason. They're just going to start from that place of reason, which we call neutral ground. And so you can look at more um, of the study on this. I got this from the Bible.org. Bible.org has got a lot of ton, uh, great resources there and actually has a book here on apologetics. Also, there's a five-view uh, book on apologetics you can get online where the five different views all talk about their views, and then they kind of go back and forth. It's called, I believe, the Counterpoint series, uh, series of books. And you can get those on a lot of different issues as well, like on hell and, and different things. And then I have an example of William Lane Craig versus Christopher Hitchens. Now, once again, remember, we're not arguing over Paul and Apollos and all this. I appreciate all of them preaching the gospel. Do I believe there's a better way than the classical way? Yes. But as, as Jesus said, if they're not against us, they're for us. And Paul said, I'm happy that they're preaching the gospel. So if I was to have a discussion with them, yeah, like I did with Eric Hernandez, and you can listen to it uh, on today's uh, notes, I'm still going to do it in grace. I'm not going to, like, say you don't have any value. I mean, God's going to use them to win people to the Lord. I just think there's a step before they do this that can be more effective. And then there's the evidentialist who's just going to start going, I'm not even going to um, question whether or not there is a God or uh, is there 
is there like proofs you have and I have what I'm going to do? And they, they may argue a little bit over the other person's proofs, but what they're just basically going to do is say, I'm going to give you the best evidence that I have. And I'm going to leave that up to you now. I'm going to just say, here it is. It's this is the evidence. This is what it is. Now, the difference between the classical approach and the evidential approach is though the classical one will use evidence, they're going to start with more basic things like a generic theistic God moving to Christianity. So they're going to start with like uh, the cosmological argument, the argument from God, uh, for God from the big, uh, from the first cause and the teleological argument, the argument from design in the universe, etc. Okay, but even a Muslim could use that, but they're going to do that gently moving them towards now the resurrection, right? Where this person here is just going to give the evidence mainly just for the resurrection of Jesus, mainly for the Bible. They're not going to mess what we would call like the generic God. They're going to go right for the Christian God, but it's all going to be just based on the evidence. And one of the best is Gary Habermas, which we all love. Everybody loves Gary Habermas because he has the best evidence on the resurrection. And he just happens to be an evidentialist because he thinks that's the best way to get people to know Jesus. And the way he points to the scriptures is he says, look at these guys. They're always walking around pointing people to the evidence. So we should too, you know? And so you can see Gary Habermas versus Anthony Flew. And by the way, Anthony Flew was a famous atheist. Like Rick, Richard Dawkins is a famous atheist in our time. He was a famous atheist back then. And he ended up becoming an, a, a deist, believing in God. And people were preaching to him, hoping that he would become a Christian. People like Lee Strobel were preaching to him because he was convinced by the argument of design and, and the argument of uh, the first cause that there had to be a God. So he was a real sassy guy, but in his later age, he changed. Okay. And then there's more, um, more things on evidentialism there. Now, moving on. And I see some of you have questions, but wait till I do my lecture for an hour. Like always, I'll get to your questions for the last half hour. Okay. Now we move on in our book to faith, scripture, and evidence. So, this little side journey that I took about showing you the different apologetics and how they use proof, we come back now into our book and see like, okay, we're going to learn the presuppositional method, and we don't want to lose focus of what proof is going to be for us. So we don't want to say we don't need no proof, and then at the same time, we don't want to say like we're always going to like, like rely upon proof. So how do we filter what proof is, and how do we give it? Through faith scripture, and evidence, okay? So faith is not mere rational thought, but it's not irrational either. It is not belief in the absence of evidence. Rather, it is a trust that rests on sufficient evidence. This fact is evident in scripture. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis 22 is often presented as an example of a faith that contravenes moral and rational norms, but this analysis often fails to take into the account the fact that Abraham had a very firm basis for what he did, namely the command of God. So we cannot use proof without understanding that people have to believe and put their faith in Scripture. So this is a walk of faith. No proof is ever going to take away people's ability to have faith, uh, the command to have faith. We're commanded to have faith. And so no one's ever just going to be one to the Lord by an argument. God may use the argument, but it will still come by faith. And even when we think that faith is arbitrary, like, like Abraham, go sacrifice your son. It wasn't because Abraham had already learned to trust God and his word. 
So we're putting faith in the character of the God we already know. And if we don't know him, he'll reveal himself to us through scripture by speaking it through our conscience. And we can get hungry for that word even by creation, to say, who made me? Why am I here? And then God is going to speak it to our heart, but he's always going to require of us faith. So never get in your mind, you're going to have a silver bullet of proof that's not going to require faith. Even Jesus, while he was on earth, doing all of his miracles, even raising Lazarus from the dead, people still had to have faith. Judas rejected faith and turned away from God, right? So it's still going to be important in the discussion of proof. Scripture is always going to be our foundation for proof, okay? Even if we're using science or any of those things, it's always going to be Scripture said this and science confirms it. Scripture says this, psychology confirms it. Like I'm all into the soul and understanding the mind, but it's always Scripture said this, this outside force confirms it. It's not this outside thing said it, and now Scripture conforms it, and that's really awesome. No, no, Scripture is the foundation, okay? And if we ever see any evidence that goes against Scripture, we always hold to Scripture and believe that evidence will one day change. And let me give you an example. They used to believe that uh, the universe was eternal, and the Scripture said it had a beginning. But we didn't stop believing in the beginning of the universe. We just waited for science to catch up. We just said, well, we don't know how to explain it through science right now, but we know God said it. It's true. But what do we need to understand it? We needed bigger micro, uh, microscopes, uh, telescopes rather. We needed more understanding of math and physics. And once we did, we understood. You rewind it, you have a point of beginning, right? So that confirmed what the Bible had said. Scripture, what God says can neither be irrational nor, nor immoral, for his word defines rationality and morality for us. When God tells us to do something, we need no greater rationale basis for doing it. So faith is not believed despite the absence of evidence. Rather, faith honors God's word as sufficient evidence. Please understand that God's word is the evidence. So if God says that the atheist and the non-believer are suppressing the truth of God and wickedness, we believe it. I don't need any more evidence. I don't need them to say, I know that I'm suppressing it. No, God said it. I don't need any more than that. And, and we don't have to even use science to prove the Bible true. We could just say the Bible's true because the Bible is true. But the Bible does tell us to subdue the earth and to do wise things and to go out and prosper. So we would expect those things to confirm the word, right? Romans 4, 20 through 21 describes Abraham's faith, always in the New Testament, a model of Christian faith as follows. Okay, so here's what the faith looks like according to the Bible, especially the New Testament. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's the biblical understanding of faith. And that's what we have in the scripture. And then now lastly, the confirmations or the things we want to give as proof to faith in scripture. Here's how we're going to do it. Okay. The ultimate proof, the ultimate evidence is the word of God. So we're going to go always back there and say, I told you so, right? In humility, but I told you so. Eyewitnesses are important, but they die and memories of them fade. Only if their testimony is preserving God's written word would that testimony have continuing value down through the history of the world. To trust God's word as ultimate evidence is not to deny the importance of reasons, as I was saying before. It's not that we're saying science is, is dumb, but when science couldn't prove that there was a beginning, we still trusted God and just said, we're not trusting science. We're going to trust God. Oh, and here we go. It was right. 
Oh, here we go. There's genders. You guys are going to come back and figure that out again, aren't you, everybody? You know, and then people back in the day were doing bloodletting, letting out their blood. George Washington during those times would let out blood. That's why the uh, the barber shop has that red spiral. It, it was a place you'd get your blood taken out because they would have the rags of blood there drying there on their light stands in front of the butcher. They thought blood letting out would heal them. What did the Bible say, though? Life is in the blood. So we go, oh, there we go. We were right again. Okay. And now let me just say this, too, because then someone else would say, well, what about if Jesus would have showed somebody raising from the dead with a video camera or himself being raised from the dead with the video camera? You know what? People wouldn't have believed that. People would say that was magic. That was a TV show. That was CG. See, there's nothing. Even the Red Sea being pardoned wasn't enough evidence for a sinful man like Pharaoh to worship that God. He ran in there to try to kill the people that God was saving. Right. So it's always going to come back down to God and his word, not even just what people say. If it's not in the scripture, God didn't deem it to be that important. Whatever was important was put into the scripture to trust God's word as ultimate evidence is not to deny the importance of reasons. God does not always reveal the reasons why uh, for what he says or does, but as a wise, true and faithful God. And as the very standard of rationality, he always has a reason. So we trust him and that we can be confident. Often he does reveal his reasons to us. Abraham knew that God had a reason for commanding him to sacrifice his son, even though that reason was hidden at first. So we look at proof filtered through faith, scripture, and the evidence being in the scripture and that lining up to the proofs that we give. Now, let me just give you these things, how to understand proof and presuppositional apologetics, okay? For these last 15 minutes, let's now look at how we're going to use proof. And it should be obvious, right? Like, let's just be honest. If you guys have caught what I have said, this is kind of a short chapter. You guys got it. So let's just get some confirmation to it now. So proof, according to Cornelius Van Til, says there is absolutely certain proof for the existence of God and the truth of the Christian of Christian theism. So why is that proof existing? Because of Scripture. Because God said it. He continues, the Reformed apologist maintains that there is an absolute there is absolutely valid argument for the existence of God and for the truth of Christian theism. He cannot do less without virtually admitting that God's revelation to man is not clear. It is fatal for the Reformed apologist to admit that man has done justice to the objective evidence if he comes to any other conclusion than that of the truth of Christian theism. Now, Reformed is another way of saving Calvinists, so we don't need to say that applies to us. But for any apologist, we need to remember this without seeing the word Reformed in there. That is, if any person hears the word of God and does not come to the conclusion that God is true and Jesus is his son and raised from the dead, that is their suppression of wickedness. So we don't need to feel like we need more proof, more evidence. Our hands are clear, and they have suppressed the truth. And there's evidence of this all over um, the debate world. When you'll see even people say, like the debater will say to the person asking questions, if I could like just give you the most mind-blowing proof, anything you would ever want to know that, that, that would prove to you God exists, would you worship the God of the Bible? People will say right back and say, no, I don't like the God of the Bible. He sends people to hell. He does. So even if I knew to my understanding that this God was real, I still would not worship him. Well, hello. Does that not sound like the Bible stories? There's a whole bunch of people that knew that God was real and didn't want to worship him. So proof is not going to change people from suppressing the, the truth of God in their wickedness if they don't want to come to faith. So let me give you an example 
that proves God's existence. And if they are not a fool, and we'll get into this in just a little bit here, the next few points, but if they are not a fool, they can receive this as a truth claim, and this is their proof. Here it is. What the scripture says is always true. Premise two, scripture says that God exists. Conclusion, therefore God exists. Well, if you're not suppressing truth and you're not a fool, is that good enough for you? It's good enough for my daughter. It's good enough for a child. Now, you may say, well, other religions can do that and convince people. Yeah, but ours is right. Just because there's copies doesn't mean there's not an original. At some point, something's going to have to prove to us why there is truth. We're choosing it to be God and his word. And when God, when we preach the gospel, God does the rest. People can convert through hearing this kind of preaching. It's true. God said it's true. Believe it. Repent. Okay. Now, not all proof is effective to non-believers. Now, this is a good point. And Chris and I were talking about this beforehand. And this is something we have to remember. Okay. So you give them that argument and they go, dude, that's silly. Cat in the hat says there's a green eggs and ham, you know, you know, whatever. Dr. Seuss says there's green eggs and ham. Therefore, there's green eggs and ham. It's, it amounts to that, you know. Well, the reason why that is is because they're suppressing what we're saying, okay? But there is something lacking here. Practically speaking, we would not be likely to use this proof in our witness to non-Christians. Most intelligent unbelievers today would dismiss it simply by denying the biblical authority on which it's based. The circle is too narrow. In one sense, the problem is not with the proof, but with the unbeliever. He ought to accept biblical authority, and therefore he ought to accept our proof, but of course he doesn't. So we're aware of that. See, the presuppositional person is fully aware that we may find ourselves in the, the place of classical apologetics. We may find ourselves in evidence. We understand that, but we're going to tell them the way God wanted it to be told first. We're going to show them how it should work when they humble themselves, because that's how it worked for everybody else in the Bible that humbled themselves. Okay. So now the question is, uh, the book brings up to use or not use proofs as a, as a, on effectiveness with unbelievers. So how should we use them if we want to be effective? What are things we should not do? And this is ultimately what he says. Uh, this is what he says. Ultimately, the only cure for repression, remember, suppressing the truth and, and wickedness, is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, as we construct arguments, we have little idea of what sort of argument will be persuasive to any peculiar individual or audience. No argument is guaranteed to be persuasive to all people. Not even arguments from Scripture alone are guaranteed in that way, though we may know from the discussion above that they are pleasing to God. So right here we go. I'm not going to base it, first of all, on what they want to hear. I'm going to base it on what God commands me to tell them. And then I'm going to adjust it as the Holy Spirit leads, because only the Holy Spirit can do it. And what's one of the greatest things we can do? Pray for them to experience God. Pray for them to experience a miracle. Pray for them to have, pray for us to get a word for them, like Jesus with the woman at the well. So let us not forget, especially as us as Pentecostals, that we're going to be listening to the Holy Spirit. But it's, for it's always filtered through the faith and the scripture, right? And so even when we're giving them the evidence, we're, we're not saying this is a, a silver bullet. The Holy Spirit has got to do it, and they have to open their heart. So I still think we should use it, okay, to use or not to use proofs based on effectiveness with unbelievers could be misleading because if you – see an argument not be effective, you might think that God doesn't want you to do it. But what if God says, I'm pleased 
by you using this argument and you don't see what I'm doing in their heart, right? So we don't just wanna base it on effectiveness, we wanna base it on obedience. And then proof what ought to persuade. And so here's the way I look at it. When my mother led me to the Lord at her kitchen table in 95, she gave me enough proof for, to knock down my arguments and to accept Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was moving in such a powerful way and I humbled myself. So her apologetic method was when I gave her a bunch of arguments against Jesus and compared him to all these other myths and fairy tales and other religions. She just said, I don't know anything about those guys, but I'll tell you what, they can't do for you what Jesus will do. Well, that sounded kind of like the scriptures, like Jesus is Lord. You know, that sounds like the scriptures where it says uh, every knee shall bow or other scriptures that said he's the way, the truth and the life. You know, she basically said, I'm not even going to get into that. I'm going to do this. Well, that was enough for me. Now, someone else may take a different journey, but it's always going to come through faith in scripture. No matter how the evidence is given, whether it's just somebody saying, ain't nobody like my Jesus. I can tell you that. Because the scripture says that, you know, because her power was in what the scripture was saying. Ain't nobody like Jesus. Uh, God will use it. Now, does God use bad arguments too? Yes, yeah, sometimes God does that. But then that causes more problems because the word comes with the bad argument. And then the person gets saved. And then now the Christian can start off with a bad argument or a bad mindset. So let's say they get saved because they saw their uncle. And then their uncle told them to become a Christian. And then they talk to somebody and says, oh, yeah, that was your uncle. Well, that could be a bunch of bad arguments. But the bottom line is. If God used it for them to be a Christian, they can get saved. But now we got to come back and explain to them what's going on. OK, and I do believe in dreams uh, and possibly visions, but I would not say it was their uncle. Right. Proof. What ought to persuade? Perhaps we can remedy the situation by defining proof. So now we're going to get a good definition of proof as that which ought to persuade instead of defining proof, rather, as that which ought to persuade rather as some excuse me. Perhaps we can remedy the situation by defining proof as that which ought to persuade rather than as something that actually persuades. So are we giving them good proof and evidence? Yes, if it ought to persuade them. If the Holy Spirit gave it to us, it's based in Scripture, it was good. Okay, But this definition brings us back to the narrowly circular proof, circular proof that we originally considered. The unbeliever ought to accept the proof together with scriptural authority it possesses, as a matter of fact, he ought to believe in God without any such argument at all, simply on the basis of God's revelation and creation. We come back to Romans 1.18 again. If our task is simply to put the unbeliever into a position which he ought to believe, then we are best advised to do nothing, for he is in that position already. I think it is right to divine, uh, define proof as that which ought to persuade. Okay, so the idea is it ought to persuade, but we don't just say it in one way because otherwise they would already be persuaded because they already have enough evidence, quote unquote, by them being a creation of God. So we're going to keep giving them those evidences that we can, believing that they should be persuaded. OK, so let me read this last part again, because it sounded like I read it wrong. If our task is simply to put the unbeliever into a position in which he ought to believe, then we are best advised to do nothing for he is in that position already. I think it is right to define proof as that which ought to persuade. Why is he saying best advice not to do nothing? Let me, no one answer right now quickly. I'll go back and research that um, on my own. But I, I know that he's not saying not to do nothing because we got a bunch of things to do something. But I'm going to say it the way I'm saying it, okay? And then now lastly, 
the need for proof in presuppositional apologetics, okay? I'm not going to go into this in detail, but there are what we call basic beliefs. And basic beliefs are things that we all already believe, whether we're Christian or not, and we should use those to point back to God. So a basic belief is that you exist. A basic belief is that you have a personality. Another basic belief is that other minds exist. Another basic belief is that the world exists and we're not in the matrix. Another belief, basic belief is, is that the past exists and that you weren't just created 30 seconds ago. Okay, so there's about maybe five to 10 basic beliefs, we call them properly basic, that without having any of these things in place, uh, like we would call them preconditions to even have an, a debate, existence, a mind, a personality, time, uniformity of nature, that we're all just not going to turn into a rabbit in the next 30 seconds, okay? And those things point to the foundation that we're saying. So that's what, that, that's going to be kind of an important thing as we go through the the uh, apologetics as proof part next week, the transcendental argument for God, as you guys have kind of already basically heard it. The transcendental argument for God, transcendental just means the, the thing that uh, transcends matter, space, and time. That argument for God basically takes all of our basic beliefs and explains them through God, because without God, we have no way of explaining them. So you'll learn about that. You can feel free to, to, to skip ahead. And then lastly, just summarizing again today's lesson, fools and proof, okay? Because Jesus said, like, I'm not going to be giving you guys a bunch of signs if you're already in this place of rebellion because it will do nothing for you. And maybe that's what Dr. Frame meant there is that we don't need to do anything else for them to be saved, but we choose to still do it anyway. Maybe that's what he was saying, but I'll go back and look at that. Uh, fools and proof, and I'll read this entirely here for our conclusion. But as we have seen, it is possible to go beyond these general recommendations and produce specific arguments for God's existence. So we start with these basic beliefs. We start with these transcendental arguments. We start with our presuppositional approach. But you can move beyond that to the evidences and the classical arguments for God. Like I said, the argument from design, the argument from the first cause. A wise man does not really need these. They are for fools. Okay, so do you get that? Maybe that's what he's saying. Okay, I, I do believe that's what he's saying. See, he's coming back to this point. You don't need them. So to just give you something to persuade you, technically you already have it. I don't have to do nothing, right? So I don't need to go back and research that. We'll just leave it at that. So a wise man does not really need these. They are for fools. But God is very patient and gracious with such fools as we all once were. Once we get beyond simply pointing the unbeliever to the creation and the statements of Scripture, proof becomes a fairly complicated matter. Since everything is created and directed by God, nothing may be properly understood apart from him. That means that any fact may become the focal point for an apologetic. The apologist may show how that fact derives its intelligibility from God. We may use a variety of approaches and methods consistent with our overall presuppositional commitment. There's the key. There's the key. Read it one more time. We may use a wide variety of approaches and methods consistent with our overall presuppositional commitment. Since proof is person variable, we are particularly interested in choosing an argumentative approach that makes contact with the individual or group we are talking to. That decision is not an easy one. So we are Pentecostal. We should be led by the Lord to do this. And so here's just like an example of some of like one that I see work all the time. I've seen more people one to the Lord 
through this than any other approach, but I do it through the presuppositional approach. But I don't have to get into a lot of arguments because I just do it like this. And when they go with me, I can see when they you know you know they follow the Holy Spirit. I can see this being used to save them and bring them to repentance. And this is what I basically say: premise one: if Jesus is Lord and Savior, then He's reliable. Can, can we trust Jesus? I always say that to people. Remember, Yuli, just give me a little nod, right? I'm like, can you trust Jesus? Do you remember me saying that, Yuli? Come on, wave your hand, nod your head. Thank you. If you can trust Jesus, then God exists, premise two. Premise three, then that means he's the Lord and Savior sent by God. Therefore, God exists. So I might not have said it in that same way, but the point is very simple. If Jesus is who he said he is, then you know he's come from God and God is existing. God is true. Okay. And so here it is in, in, in the way we can call it point of contact. When we encounter people who are foolish in the biblical sense, this is my words, by the way, when we encounter people who are foolish in the biblical sense, not accepting the claims of the Bible because they're suppressing the truth of God and wickedness, we should offer them a rebuke and then the proof of God in the form of showing them the absurdity of their position. And that comes from the scriptures. We do this in gentleness and respect, praying that the Holy Spirit will convict them of their sin and unbelief. Okay, now let me just go and review here quickly, and then we'll do some questions at the end. Listen, describe the three forms of apologetics. Proof, apologetics as proof, apologetics as defense, apologetics as offense, okay? We offer them the proof of our apologetics by showing them the truth of Scripture. We defend those proofs of Scripture, and then we go on the offense and tear down the worldview with Scripture. Listen, describe the three main methods of Christian apologetics, the three main ones, presuppositional, classical, and then evidential. Presuppositional is going to say there's no neutral ground. We're going to attack the presupposition first and the preconditions for all existence and life. The classical is going to start with the generic God moving to a more specific Christian God. And the evidentialist is just going to go right to direct Christian proofs for our belief system. Okay. Number three, describe how presuppositional apologetics understands faith, scripture, and evidence. We understand that everything's going to come through faith, that there's not going to be a silver bullet argument to give them the proof to become a Christian, even though seeing the great miracles in the time of Moses and the, and the Israelites in the wilderness or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a lot of people saw that and still worship pagan gods. It's going to require faith. Faith comes from Scripture. Scripture is the basis for all truth and all of our evidence. And the evidence that we give is based on faith in Scripture, not the other way around. What is a good definition of proof? Evidence that ought to convince. Evidence that gives them enough reason to believe. It should Convince them if they weren't hardened in their heart, suppressing it. That's what proof is. It's a reason to believe. And you even see websites named that, Christian Apologetic Ministries, reason to believe, reasons to believe. Why are proofs rejected by non-believers according to Romans 1.18? Go from Genesis all the way to Revelation to the people taking the mark of the beast to Adam and Eve. Why have people rejected what God has already done? Because of wickedness. Okay, Wickedness, they suppress the truth. And what is a basic belief? A basic belief is an axiom or a truth that everyone knows is true without any outside evidence, but only the Christian can give the foundation for it. I can't prove that I wasn't existed, uh, I wasn't uh, born or created 30 seconds ago 
with all of the universe the way it is, like the Truman Show, right? I, I can't prove that we all just didn't come here. Only thing I can say is that I'm here now, so I know that I must be here now, but the past seems real to me, and the scripture says it is real, that I'm in real time. So we all have the basic belief that we exist, we have a mind, that other minds exist. How do I know robots, are, you know, all of you guys are not robots, or the body snatchers, that all of you haven't been taken over by aliens? Well, how would I really know that? Well, the Bible tells me that, but I, I assume that's true. Even non-Christians assume it's true, but only the Bible gives me the foundation for believing that basic belief. And how should presuppositionals use proof? Presuppositionals should use proof in a particular way. We would should use various approaches, various methods, and we should do it person, uh, varying to each person by the power of the Holy Spirit, with scriptures. Okay, so that is our hour lecture and a little bit of review. And uh, I hope now I can take some of your questions. I will start with uh, Joe B. And we will enjoy the class together here. So let me get to Joe B. Okay, Joe B, you're up. What is your question, good sir? My bad. I, I wasn't trying to ask a question. I was uh, trying to get on. <laughs> so I had my hand raised by accident. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, I was trying oh. to get 30 minutes, so sorry. <laughs> no, no problem. Any questions? Any questions basic, or comments? Go ahead. Basic belief. Um, um, oh, sorry. Juan, you go first, no, please. Uh, basic beliefs, like two plus two, four... You know, it's kind of mind-blowing because from the, the the atheist perspective, there's no logical reason except for God for these truths that exist while being physical and they're conscious of their mind. And, you know, I know atheists would try to do abstracts, but I do find it really interesting on that. And, you know, do you want to expound on your take on it? Like, I thought you were sides. making a comment. I actually don't understand the question. Could you ask so, it again, please? What, what do you think atheists will respond from math, for example? Like math, the concepts that exist while any physical, we see the evidence for it, but math itself exists and it goes while, while a, it doesn't stop. It just keeps going beyond our human understanding. Are you asking the question, how is math a basic belief? I, I guess I'm still not understanding yeah, the question. Yeah, if you're an atheist. Okay, can you ask it one more time, brother? I'm going to really try to focus. So, and, yeah, go ahead. Atheists, like math even being logical is illogical for them because yeah. if they're just chemicals, there's no understanding or reason. Thing. you know uh, how would a how would a christian use math as a way to show them that any basically is logical for them since rejecting god makes them a fool yeah okay so you're asking how do i use the basic belief of logic and math existing yes but that's how that 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 is the, the argument. The argument math and logic exist. So that's yeah. why I guess I'm confused. So I say to them, 
why does math and logic exist? There, yeah, there's no, there's no real answer from yeah. them. Only God, our source of God. They're, yeah. They're Otherwise, it's called a useful illusion. That's what some yeah. what will say. It's just a useful illusion to say these things happen to work. But then you would have to say, then, then everything can be illusory. And then that's where you get into that um, absurdity and infinite regress. So if they say, yeah. I can be an illusion in illusion now, these are useful illusions. Well, then if you can be in an illusion now, where did you come from? Well, I don't know where I came from because I'm in an illusion now. So it's an illusion that you have in the past. Yet It's an illusion that, and then what, what, what's the universe going to be like moving forward? Well, they can say, I have no evidence or proof that the universe is going to be conformed moving forward. Okay, that's an illusion. So then who am I talking to right now? Am I talking to an actual person? And what you want to show them is, this is not how they live. So really, no one lives unless they're insane. And this is what you get more into as we get into the different arguments is like only someone who is not properly functioning with their brain believes everything's an illusion. But we know those people are not properly functioning with their brain. So the majority of us are, and we all see truth this way. So the atheist has to literally give up everything as we've seen before to run away from this God and then, you know, use that as their excuse. So yes, we use the basic beliefs, as it says here, two plus two is four. Uh, my wife loves me because I can know that my wife loves me because she told me it's like communication, you know, so there's like about 10 and then maybe you could expound them to a hundred, but you could say all of these things are preconditions to, to existing their basic beliefs, logic, mathematics, uh, the existence of me, the existence of you, the existence of the universe, and they only point to God. And then the next step is that we show them that they can only point to the Christian God. Only the Christian God explains the world in this way. And so it's not just in a generic God, it's the Christian God. And so that's why when you learn about the transcendental argument next uh, week, you'll see the transcendental argument as it relates to the Trinity, because we believe that this is only a good argument for uh, evangelical Christians, biblical triune believing Christian, uh, believe, tr Christians that believe in the Trinity and the deity of Christ and so forth. So does that kind of help answer you? I'm sorry I didn't get it at first. No, no, it does, it does. And thank you, Pastor Joe. And it shows me like how really the the Bible really comes in our level. The fool says there's no God and that's why Amen. they're full. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was something that you said, something that you mentioned about the time when uh, when your mom presented the gospel to you at the table. Uh, now, is there a possibility? Because it seemed like when now she didn't have to she didn't have to go into all of the stuff that we talked about to convince you. Is there a possibility that there are different uh that there are different methods that are more effective based on the place that the, the, the unbeliever is at in their faith. Does that make sense? Yeah, basically you're saying, and I don't want to read into our conversation too much, but I, I'm still kind of hearing the same angle. Are you basically saying, is there a time not even to argue at all and just preach and go right into the gospel? Is that, is that what you were right saying? Not, 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 
Not specifically. Uh, it, say, for instance, um, say when your mom, when your mother preached to you, yeah, you were at a place where you were willing to say, "Okay, that's it. That's all I need." Yeah. Um, is there there's someone else at a different place where they are they are so closed off to the gospel that there's a different that there's a more effective way to present the gospel? Oh, yeah. Specifically. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I okay. think if. If while preaching the gospel to me, I don't accept what my mom said, it's not that my mom didn't give me enough evidence because I'm multitasking while I'm talking with you guys going back over that section. When he says do nothing, you know, your advice to do nothing. What he is basically saying here is, is kind of the question you're asking, which is even if we don't give them the best proof, they've already had enough for damnation. Okay, so they're they're already guilty based on what they have. Jesus said, if I would not have come, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they are. And he has sent the Holy Spirit across the world to convict of righteousness and of judgment. And it's on. So uh, yes, we are to give them evidence and those things, but we don't have to convince them more than what God has already done for judgment's sake. Then we filled with the Holy Spirit and seeing that God wants to save people, obviously want to bring forth the best arguments or the best case for Christianity. And the Lord may use us in a variety of ways. God knew just what I needed at that time. And I humbled myself and that was enough for me. And maybe there's somebody like Elise Strobel who needs two years, but he along that journey could have gotten saved at any point he wanted to humble himself. So it's like, we shouldn't necessarily think the guy who studies for 10 years and gets saved is actually a greater testimony in one sense. We should actually look at him like, man, you were that hard hearted. You know, you were that foolish. And I kind of am reminded of C.S. Lewis's testimony when he got saved. And he's like, you know, the most stubborn man of England got saved that day, you know, because he had been resisting it for so long. And so, yes, there's going to be different strokes for different folks. Uh, We need to be able to hear from God and to present those and know in the midst of us presenting them, as long as we're doing our best, like we're not going to be responsible for their choice because like we didn't give them a certain kind of argument. Like, well, like on Judgment Day, man, if you would have studied more and understood the tag argument, the transcendental argument, I would have gotten saved, Chris, but now I'm going to hell. God's going to be like, liar. You're a liar. You had enough evidence. And Chris did a great job. And he could have given you more, but you still would have rejected it. But, you know, can more evidence help? Sure. But it doesn't mean they're going to necessarily accept it. They're going to determine. This is where I believe. We're not Calvinists. We don't believe God determines when they get saved. We don't believe that. That's what people say, like, you know, like in the hood. Like, when the good Lord wants to save me, he'll save me. He'll take this beer out of my hand. You know, No, 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 no. Good Lord wants to save you now, you know. So God can use other things, but ultimately it's going to be our choice and how much we miss out on in that time that the Lord is dealing with us. And then we never know when he's going to say, your time is up. Does that help answer your question? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it does. Definitely. Amen. Amen. Feel free to tell me no if it doesn't, guys. If I ever miss it, please, please tell me no. Anybody else? Any questions or comments? Go ahead. Uh, oh. Oh. 
<laughs> how would you um, approach this? Uh, what proof would you provide to someone who is <clears throat> a Christian uh, and is currently attempting to go, uh, I guess I shouldn't say it. Let me, let me rephrase that. I'm sorry. Uh, what proof would you provide to someone who says they're a Christian and is attempting to return to Catholicism? Yeah. I would, I would give them the evidence of scripture, how the Bible talks about all these things. Like we believe in as Protestants, you know, the sola, sola scriptura, all of those things would be a great starting point of the reformation. And then I would go on the offense and tear down that worldview, the Roman Catholic worldview. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's how, that's a great question. And that's exactly what I would do with, um, with Islam too. So let's say a Christian was, was dabbling around with that and was saying like, Oh, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I'm going to say, well, this is what the Bible says. It's what Jesus said. This is the evidence. This is the proof. This is who we are supposed to be. This is who we're supposed to follow. And then when you look over here, these are the problems with that religion. These are the false, the false claims. And, and that goes back to our definition that as presuppos of presuppositional apologetics, we attack presuppositions. So why is the Muslim a Muslim? Because they believe the Quran is the word of God. So we're going to say, no, it's not. This is the word of God. And we're going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with those things, and we're going to show them that their presupposition of saying the Quran is the word of God, the lens they see the world from, is the wrong worldview. And we're going to say the same thing with Roman Catholicism. We're going to say this worldview of the church having the ability to make up tradition as it goes along and to add all of these things to the scripture, we're going to say this violates the word of God, and here's where it's going to lead, and here's where it's going to go. And, you know, the scripture is going to be our basis, and then whatever proof that we have, you know, the popes living ungodly lives, uh, the crusades, the persecution of the Christians, we're going to show all of that evidence through the scripture that continues to reveal the truth of that scripture and what we're, we're, we're preaching to them. Anybody else? Yes, uh, I have uh, two questions. Well, one's a comment, one's a question. Uh, first question would be, uh, I'm, I was looking at the proofs and, uh, and just uh, how you, you basically said, well, it says right here in the notes that the apostles went to, the, you know, when people were doubting, went to the proofs of the resurrection and stuff like that. Um, I was just wondering, uh, because some people – they need different proofs, different cultures. Like you said, yeah. cultures need like they have dreams and everything. Uh, well, we can't really give people dreams, so I'm wondering, as an apolo uh, apologist, uh, how much do you think the work before, prior to evangelizing by getting to knowing the people that you're preaching to comes into play? Like, if I go to Wicker Park, in my mind, I'm thinking, man, maybe I should, uh, you know already have some presuppositional knowledge of like what people already think marriage is or something like that, you know, like, like an idea of marriage behind marriage. And, and, and like, that would be an example, but like when Paul went to, to other places, or even when he was talking Corinthians, uh, he did use basically their lives in a, in a sense of like, you know, basically like you, you guys weren't the smartest of people. You guys weren't, you know, the best of people, you know, but, you know, and then he says, you know, but Christ used you to shame the, the, the wise and stuff like that. So he knew his audience. 
as presuppositional apologists, how much do we have to know our audience, audience or it doesn't come to play at all? Oh, it definitely comes to play. And why would it come to play? What scripture would tell us that knowing our audience comes to play? Mars Hill is one that comes to mind. Yep. He knew their poets. He knew their culture. He studied them. He walked around and got an understanding of them. He used one of their idols as a starting point for his message. What would be another scripture? Another scripture would be, I mean, you could look at a lot of the OT. I think my, the first thing that comes to me is the Old Testament prophets a lot. You know, um, they, they obviously knew their audience when they. When yeah, they, God gave them a heart for them. They lived among their people. How about one that maybe is a little bit more obvious? Jesus and uh, how he knew uh, Pharisees, how he knew. The, yeah, but. The Jew. Yeah, First Corinthians nine ten. Thank you, one to the Jews. I became like a Jew to right. win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. So here you see that uh, Paul was willing to become all things to all people, so that all might, uh, so that some might be saved. Okay, and then, uh, okay, so yeah, I get that. Um, all right, that would be good. Now, the, that helps. That helps, by the way. Just want to let you know. That helps. <laughs> good. Can I have an example, though, of maybe um, – because I know for me and myself, like, when I go into Wicker Park, I do already have a preconceived notion that many people, you know, they have uh, some type of – either you're going to face, like, these people that are kind of, like, spiritual weird, weirdos almost. Like, they're like, yeah, I'm spiritual. I don't need religion or whatever. Uh, or you're going to face like a dude who, you know, thinks he knows everything and because he watched the zeitgeist and stuff. Uh, yeah. But when I'm like open air, pre like open air preaching with the, the microphone and everything. Uh, and I, you showed a couple of videos where presuppositionalists, they were on there uh, preaching with the mic. But I'm wondering how I could maybe, because when, when Paul came in at Acts 17, you know, he was becoming like, he was becoming like them. He understood their poetry, understood them. And he put it, he installed, like he put it in his preaching, you know what I'm saying? Like he put it in his preaching. Yeah. So I'm wondering like, I, I want, I, like that's something I really want to grow in just like in my preaching, maybe putting a presuppositional uh, like understanding there, you know, I, I don't know if I'm making myself clear. Like, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I would use, I would use culture. I think culture is a great way to point them towards Jesus. I would use like Katy Perry, and her interview with her psychologist saying she doesn't want to be Katie anymore. She wants to be Catherine. That's why she cut her hair. And I would say for me personally, I would say last time I was out here, people were bumping the song. I kissed a girl and I liked it. Now this young lady doesn't know her purpose. She knows that that's not who she is. She was created for more. How many of you feel like Katy Perry today that you wish you could just be the person God made you be? You wish you could be the Catherine God wanted you to be and not the persona you put on. I mean, that's how I would do it, bro. I would, I, would, I would hit up all the different things that God puts in my heart that they put up as false beliefs and draw them back to God. Cool. And then uh, that was my first question. But my second one would be uh, this. Uh, I really, well, it's, it's a comment and a question, but I really like this, this uh, presupposition because, I mean, I notice you're talking about how the Calvinists, they're like, you know, if you don't, debate like this where it basically is like you know if you don't think like us you're basically not like a masculine christian or whatever you i think you said that right? yeah 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 um i don't i don't agree with what they said but i definitely see that this is so uh this is so strong in a sense because it's basically Amen. like uh 
it's basically saying, listen, man, what you're, what you're saying, no matter what you say, dude, it's, it's super foolish. And, I, and, and, and it's like, as Christians, I know it's sensitive. It, it, we're trying to be like, we're having the all, you know, we're, we become all things to all men. And we, we take, I think some Christians, they take it to a, a sensitive way. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I don't ever did Paul, uh, you know, not like ever come in a sensitive way. You know what I'm saying? Even when he came with Acts 17, it was, it was, it was so, so bold to say like, yo, man, this is the, the, you're missing out on this thing. You know, this is the God that you're missing. And I, I feel like uh, as Christians, you know, evidentialists, they can, they can in a way uh, miss out on what you're saying, the, the gospel and the cross and there's power in that. But this, it's like, it still remains in the power of the God. You can still remain in the power of the gospel and you don't have to, to give an edge to them because you can give an edge to like people that are debating you. And I feel like you're, you're just kind of like, you're just almost specifically poking at their beliefs. You know what I'm saying? Nothing's really being destroyed. Nothing's really being uh, challenged. It's more like, yeah, man, you're, you're, you're good here, but here's some more knowledge and you're just throwing knowledge at them. There's no real, uh, like real destruction of their beliefs. You know, there's no real destructive argument against that. That's why yeah. I, that's why I really like this. I think I've seen you in the streets do that a lot. And it's yeah. almost, it almost seems offensive. I'm not going to lie. It almost seems offensive. <laughs> like, you're basically, I don't know, dude. Like, it, it's basically almost saying, listen, dude, because you, you understand the foolishness now. You see the foolishness yeah. in it, in it, in the way. And uh, I've tried, I think I, I, wanna, I wanted to give a testimony uh, at Belmont Clark out Friday. I told the dude, uh, he was arguing. He's like, why is there even a show? Why, why, blah, 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 you know? And I'm like, well, dude, you know, why do you need proof? You know, what is it? Why do you need this much proof, man? What, why is your proof better than my proof? You know, and I, I kind of like went there. And I think I think a long time ago we had a conversation like that where it's like people, you know, they all want this this sense of proof. Right. But God doesn't really need to give proof and people could have different ideas of proof. So like your proof, uh, like you uh, getting preached to by your mom is different than my uh, my encounter with Jesus that led me to, to the, you know, to salvation, you know? So people have different proofs. So if I like represent a proof, uh, like, okay, the cosmological argument, that doesn't mean that everyone now is going to be saved off the cosmological argument. You, I don't know if I made myself clear. That's why I like preaching yeah. because it's like, you, you know, people, you can provide proof, but that proof is, it, it's not going to win everybody. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you just come right, right here and they can see them and they still probably wouldn't believe. That, that was a comment. All right. Thank you. Yeah, that confirms definitely what we're saying, broski. Good deal. I definitely uh, agree with what you are saying there, that we need to come in boldness. And, yeah, those guys have some positives to it. But at the same time, my issue is um, how they're attacking other Christians. I think it gets into the divisiveness of what I read at the beginning. And, and like you said, if you were late, you may want to go back and look to the beginning of the notes uh, to the Scripture that I had read that basically uh, says in Corinthians that we shouldn't say ones with the Paul, ones with Paul, ones with Apollos, etc. Because what that does is that really kind of uh, makes it sound like we're better than each other. And if there's something true, there that's good. We should help each other. And I was just teaching this to my children today. But we should give advice and teaching in such a way that honors the person we're talking to. You know, we shouldn't disrespect them, especially among the brothers. The Bible says we should be kind to each other. We should, the world should see us by how we love each other. And you might not have heard this either because you were not here at the beginning, but there's two camps right now 
warring with each other on social media about the classical approach and the pre-sup approach. And the unbelievers may find us to be inconsistent in our love. You know, of course, we should tell each other, like a Pentecostal can share his heart to the Baptist and say, this is why we believe in this. But we don't want to do it to the point where we bring shame to the gospel and become so aggressive with each other that everything becomes a an essential doctrine. Instead of saying there are things that are essential and non-essential, and then the non-essentials, we can still be in unity, but let's go out there and win the world. I mean, it's not like we have too many apologists out here. Now we need to start narrow, narrowing them down over these methods. I mean, sure, pick the method that God has led you to do, believe in it, and let's talk about it. Maybe we have some disagreements, but thank God you're doing those methods, you know? Thank God you're out there. So like uh, Eric Hernandez, the guy I was discussing with, that you guys can see with uh, – Leighton Flowers on that show. It's like, praise God, this guy is going out there winning souls, talking to atheists, nothing but love for him. You know, if he disagrees with me, that's fine. I still believe he could do it better if he had it this way, but I'm not going to let that distract us. So that's, that's where I think I was trying to go with that and uh, not just start bullying each other. Okay. We have three minutes left. That's probably enough for uh, one question or comment. Go for it. Anybody? Mark Hill. Um, it's one of the best sermons because it kind of it's more classical in apologetics, but it is a way where apologi apologetics to a crowd is because he doesn't he basically uses proof to put to use his point. The the the, the, the backstory was there was a God they pray to an unknown God and they did not know they, they did not know who that God was but it was a creator God and and that's pretty much the backstory of it yeah and that's I mean dude it's so funny I bet you every pre, I bet you every apologetic method uh, apologetical method the people who f find themselves in the differing ones would all look at that from their point of view because I see presuppositional in there I can see evidential classical, you know, it's like which angle you're going to take it from, because where, where I would see the presuppositional from is he says, the one you don't know, I know. So he doesn't start by building and building. He just says, I know, and doesn't list off 20 arguments to prove he knows. But like you said, the classical can say, well, I started off where they were and I bring them to where I am through different evidences. And that's why I'm quoting these poets, because I'm showing them through these evidences uh, you know, taking my time. And then the, the evidential guy can go, he went right into the evidence at the end because that's when he says Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's when they stopped him is when he went right to the evidence, you know, so you can see those three major approaches there. And, you know, I think that's great. So let's do our after-class discussion with uh, Juan. Uh, let's do a Hoselito. Hoselito, close us out in prayer, my brother. Por favor. Sure thing. Father God, we thank you so much for a wonderful day and a wonderful hour and a half of a Bible study, Father God. And we pray, Father God, that during the during this Bible study, Father God, it's not just a going to class, Father God. It's not just just being here, Father God, but it's more about learning your word, Father God. It's more about winning souls, Father God. It's more about bringing more souls to your kingdom, Father God. It's more about bringing more more to your to to your glory and your honor father god more souls father god will be saved in jesus name father god and we pray father god we thank you so much for this 
wonderful time of class, Father God. And we pray, Father God, that we will continue to apply these in our lives and this will help us grow in you more and become men and women of God that you have called us to be, Father God. That we will never be the same again and more lives will be changed, Father God. And we will apply these in our lives, Father God, from all the days of our lives till the day we meet you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.